everybody, this is Sean. And this is Kevin. And welcome to another episode of Shot by Shot. It's been a little while, but I think we're going to make up with it with an absolutely fantastic guest. Kevin, who is joining us for this session? Tonight we have Stephanie Phillips, who is a fairly newcomer onto the scene in in comic book uh, terms, I guess at least. But she has just blown up with some amazing work. We talk a lot about her new series, uh, Harley Quinn, which is really exciting. It is a lot of fun. Riley Rosmo works in perfect harmony with Stephanie. Uh, It's buoyant, it's respectful, and progressive at the same time. She's just going to move this into some delightful directions. Uh, Yeah, but the fact of the matter is Stephanie has been on the scene, in and out, weaving for quite some time. I think one of my favorite books from her is The Butcher of Paris. I know, Kevin, you're a fan as well. Yeah, a great book, and that's actually when I became aware of her her work. It came out the exact same time as another one of our series called Kill Whitey Donovan that was coming out through Dark Horse, and I think we dropped the same week, picked it up, and was just really blown away by the... I wasn't expecting to... I didn't really know what I was expecting, but I found something really cool, and then I she got on my radar big time, and uh, all of her books have just this really cool historical stuff, and a really wide range, and she's a doctor, so she should be good at these things. She's a doctor, and she is also a Muay Thai fighter, and so if you watch her fight scenes, they tend to be a little bit more technical and specific because Stephanie kicks a lot of ass. Ass-kicking doctor. You couldn't ask for more. She won the genetic lottery. We won't bother you anymore with our ruminations. Let's get into it with Stephanie Phillips. Kevin, what are you drinking tonight? All right, so I'll have to tweet a picture of this out because obviously we don't do the video, but I try to come up with with something that's appropriate to our guest. So I read this again last night. And I was looking through my uh, cabinet, like, well, like Butcher of Paris, what could possibly work? You know, it's not like whiskey's not known, you know, as a Paris thing, but I did have this and I thought it matched the Dave Johnson cover really well. It's this, um, (laughs) the melted wax. Yeah. It it looks really bloody, right? So (laughs) if you're uh, listening, you can check the uh, shot by shot Twitter feed. I'll have the cool picture of the, uh, the drink in the cover of the book. So. And I will open that sucker up. Oh, it's fresh. Oh yeah, this thing, it was a Christmas gift, so. Makers um, 46, I'm a big fan of. It goes down a little bit smoother. Good to know. Yeah. Sean approved. <laughs> Mr. Stelfreeze, what are you drinking? Ah, uh, and again, um, for for Stephanie, because uh, after, and it's weird when, I, when I've read your stuff, like spread out, it, the the breath of it didn't hit me, but uh, but I've kind of noticed that you have a way with sort of false Americana, this uh, this sort of Americana thing, but it's a lie. <laughs> you know, it's it's either it's either people are living in your stories, they're either living the lie, or they're bad people that hope for Americana and they're dreaming the lie, but it's Americana, but it's a lie. <laughs> and, uh, and, comes from somewhere very specific. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, well, I, I, I really love that. So, so for for you tonight, what I'm drinking is Lipton iced tea. <laughs> That's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> because because Lipton is the most 
basic tea I can imagine <laughs> if it's it's Americana and uh, and I've I've since moved on to better teas, but <laughs> but Lipton I Lipton oh actually I'm drinking hot tea, but Lipton tea is Americana and it's a lie. <laughs> so. Brian, is your like palate screaming in bourgeoisie pain? I can't picture you drinking Lipton anything. Oh, this is beneath me. This is so beneath me. <laughs> yeah. It only could be better if you did the brisk iced tea. And <laughs> Not even a Tazo. You're going for Lipton. I don't know where I'd buy Lipton. <laughs> well, you can get it at Publix. <laughs> I miss Publix. I love public. Oh, I just realized mm -hmm. all of you all are native Southerners except for me. So Stephanie, you're from yeah. Florida. And then Kevin, you're in Alabama. And Brian, you're in Atlanta. I honestly don't consider Florida the South. I think Florida is more of a, a northern wormhole. <laughs> you know, where, where people, so many people from the North have gone there that it's now really just the North. Unless you're in the panhandle. Because then you're basically yeah, yeah. You're Alabama with a beach. <laughs> you're, the, you're the Alabama beach. Yeah. You know? I feel and, like that's like the hotbed of like country rap. Well, you know, it's like that band, uh, Florida Georgia Line. Sure. They, like, they took the worst shit from both states and made a band out of it. And I think that's, yes. you know, that kind of describes the panhandle. My wife is from Dothan, Alabama. Okay. And, uh, you know, I, I used to always say to, you know, well, Alabama is not as bad as you think. It's, you know, come on, guys. I mean, it's stereotypes. Dukes of Hazzard's not real. And then I went to Dothan and I uh, realized that, oh, it's, it's, it's much real. It's <laughs> 10 times worse. Yeah. And so, and then that Florida panhandle area is, it, that's all like the same, same group of people. I mean, I say that jokingly, there's plenty of good people down there, but that's a different world altogether. Sure. And uh, like, they're still rocking the mullets, like Billy Ray Cyrus. Yeah. Look. Breaking oh, heart, yeah. like, that's Sleeve, real sleeveless plaid, man. Sleeve, sleeveless plaid is still like a really hot thing down there. Oh, yeah, absolutely, for sure. <laughs> what part of Florida are you from, Stephanie? Tampa, Tampa. Okay, yeah, so that that was probably that's an, sort of that's sunk. an acceptable Florida, yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, at the time, you know, I, I've had I had family sending me, you know parked outside of, of their place today just a bunch of just confederate flags and my sister was just having none of it so that was <laughs> my sister just angrily sending me text after text of like can you believe this i should go remove this i'm like i mean do it like <laughs> go for it but um, go for it yeah. I mean, you th you think it would be a little better. And I mean, it's definitely better than like what you're saying, Kevin. It's like you go outside of Tampa, it's worse. But uh, Tampa has, like, I think, the advantage of being like where most of the northerners migrate to. So uh, there's a lot of snowbirds and um, you can see it at hockey games and stuff when you're at a hockey game. And it's like 90% a Toronto team or something instead of. Whoa. <laughs> wow. Yeah, you know, like the 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 Confederate flag thing. Like, I think I've had this conversation with Brian at least once or twice. It's it's here. Like, you know, uh, the whole. I mean, it's the whole dynamic of race and race relations. I mean, we're the hotbed. I mean, you know, I mean, from Birmingham, uh, you know, before I was born, but this was the hotbed of of segregation and whatnot. But here, it's like black and white. We all grew up together. And the, the children and the grandchildren of the segregation age, um, 
and and the the Confederate flag thing, uh, in the in like that's sort of a warning sign. Like you just sort of know, all right, those are the guys I'm not gonna mess with. Um, you know, if you're a black guy, you're like, all right, yeah, that truck I'm staying away from. <laughs> so it's sort of like you know, it's it, it <laughs> yes. a warning signal. It's it's sort of like you know, do not do not drink the paint. You know, like you, if you didn't say. <laughs> It's like the it's like the poison tree frogs. It's just like, oh, okay, that color tells me that maybe I should stay away. Yeah. <laughs> so we we didn't we don't have the the, the subtle racism never really existed. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But but no, we have to ask Stephanie, what are you drinking tonight? Um, I'm just drinking water. My my two beverages of choice are either coffee or water. But if I go coffee, I'll be up all night. So. So yeah, <laughs> you strike me as a very healthy person. Um, normally, uh, I like when I was fighting and stuff. Like you kind of have to be like. Uh, I mean, there were entire days of my life trying to make weight where I was eating literal baby food, and I'm not sure that's really healthy. That's just like <laughs> that's like <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. That's not that's not like the epitome of health. But uh, but yeah, I I, I don't. Yeah. All just by choice, uh, and uh, don't eat fried food, don't eat beef or pork. It's a very weird diet. So I, eat, but I'll eat chicken fingers all day. So <laughs> I want to hear so much about this. It's not even funny. So what's your caloric intake when you're fighting? <laughs> I I don't know anymore. Um, that was that was a while ago. Um, Got it. I also our our thing was in, in being a woman fighting fights are harder to come by. So we stayed at white all the time. Um, so whatever my fighting was, I was walking around that. Uh, so it was kind of just like maintaining the fight weight all the time instead of wow. like, switch it up. Yeah. Um, and there were times where I would take a fight on like, you know, weeks notice just because it's like, you know, there were so few females in the, especially Southern Muay Thai uh, arena. So as soon as somebody would like drop out, it's like, oh yeah, I'm there. I'll be there. I'll, it's like a five hour drive. Got it. I'll go, I'll go to the panhandle and uh, take a fight or something. <laughs> so we've also been disrespecting you, Stephanie, because we have not oh, been calling you. Tell me how. <laughs> we have not been calling you Dr. Stephanie <laughs> Phillips. Uh, That's right. The doctor is in. This is yeah. our first doctor. This is awesome. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Feeling pretty good. We're, we're going to go academic tonight. So, so everyone put on their NPR voice when talking to Stephanie. <laughs> but Stephanie, congratulations. So you're a technical writer, you were saying, but you got your doctorate in rhetoric and- Composition. Rhetoric and composition. So what's that entail? Uh, that's It's technical writing mostly. Uh, technical writing, I do visual rhetoric, media studies. Um, like my dissertation was on visual rhetoric, looking at um, how images have life in the same way that we think about words. Uh, so trying to actually get over this weird dichotomy we've created in our brains that these two things have to be super distinct. Um, and talking about kind of like the life cycle of an image, the way that you could do something um, we call like image tracing. Um, like the Obama Hope poster is a really good example of this. And somebody wrote a book on this. It's really kind of interesting, but it's kind of like how the picture was taken of Obama that turned into the Obama Hope poster that spurred like a million different iterations of the Obama Hope poster in places that the original author of that poster didn't anticipate. Like there's Game of Thrones versions, there's versions that is, exist in other countries for different 
uh, like political uprisings. Uh, so just kind of looking at how an image is then created and then has its own life outside of the creation process, which is, there's a reason I did like a 300 page dissertation on it. I just find it fascinating. So. <laughs> and it helps with comics to, you know, think about visuals all the time. So Stephanie, when I was at Paste Magazine, we had an app and you could take, a, you could upload a picture and it would put it in the same color palette and design as that. <laughs> it was Pascal Ferry? Wow. Not Pascal Ferry. Was it? Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. Uh, Shepherd Ferry. Shepherd Ferry. Okay. Very cool. Well, congratulations once more. Uh, I think we'll all want to read that dissertation at some point. Is it public? <laughs> um. That's a good question. I feel like it, I feel like it's going to become public domain. I don't remember if there's like, I think they put like a year potential embargo or something on it, but I think it does become public domain. So it's um, 300 pages? Uh, it's somewhere around there. Yeah, it's like five chapters of 50 to 80 or 100 pages each or something. So. Will there be an audiobook version? <laughs> <laughs> it again so i can't imagine anybody else reading it <laughs> yeah yeah i don't think i've written 300 pages in in my life um but but like the the subject matter that that really uh, absolutely fascinates me because i mean i i do just in 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 the course of making comics i'm i'm constantly studying the uh, the effects of visual image uh, imagery even even things like you know sort of paradalia how that affects you know our our visual uh, recognition of uh, of things, and and I try to use that in comics. But you're you're talking about kind of a higher uh, form of uh, of of that, and uh, and I I think that that type of stuff because I think I consider writing to be intellectual. It sort of initiates intellectually, and then it becomes vis um, visuals. But I think uh, visual language is just really immediate you know it's it's uh, and 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 i like that comics is that combination where you're actually uh you're handed a visual but you also have to intellectualize at the same time and then through that i think the readers individually kind of custom make their their stories which uh which i think is something that's unique to uh to comics yeah, absolutely. And I have um, quite a bit of my dissertation looked at comics, just, you know, obviously from what I do, but comics are such a good example of that. Like the, um, the way that somebody gets to engage with it, like you're saying, Brian, to kind of make that story themselves. Um, and also that's where part of the meaning comes from is how that reader is interacting with it, which is, I think, really cool. Like all of the things together, even um, I did a chapter also on like, I mean, this is getting super nerdy, but things like, like DC will have like a different font for a specific character. Like I remember writing Red Tornado, Red Tornado's got this like very specific lettering that they use. Yeah, it, yeah. It, he's a robot so like even the lettering itself gets into a very interesting kind of art form and like a really visual storytelling like a piece of that storytelling that all kind of combines together that I think is just so cool about comics and you know I'm, I'm glad I get to do it I, I started as a photographer I actually went to school on an art scholarship for photography and I feel like like that actually has helped so much with writing comics like learning about a panel and a still frame um, and how that can make meaning. But then comics, I feel like as soon as I discovered like this world of creating comics, I was like, this explodes what I was doing with photography into something oh, like, man. 
like, you know, I get yeah. to the, the visual elements and the uh, writing that I like to do. And it's, it's really been a lot of fun to kind of play with that in the stuff I'm writing and try to like expand what I've done from one issue to the next and try to try something new and see what else the medium is capable of. Now, did your um, did your studies take you at all into um, like uh, Wagner's uh, Ring Cycle? Because that's that's the basis of a lot of where I sort of draw my storytelling uh, inspiration from, and how uh, Wagner used uh, specific colors and specific uh, tones and specific visuals for specific characters to the point where it's almost like Pavlov's dog, where you would get to the point where you would see this visual. Uh, this visual cue of a color or this visual cue of, of uh, a chord and you would automatically mentally associate it with, uh, with, with that character. Right. Oh, that's really cool. I, I did not include parts of that, but that is, I mean, it's making me think about things that we do with like in the movies, you can get like a sound that indicates um, I'm, I'm trying to think of like those, those chords. I think it's like four chords that play when Wonder Woman comes on the screen that da -da -da -da, and we're ah, like, yeah. Right, like um, in comics, because you don't have that verbal, like it's making me think about all the ways that we find very visual cues to associate with, um, you know, in Harley, like I wanted a way to make her captions stand out. So in a lot of them, they have these little muted diamonds behind it. And it's like the diamond has become just such an iconic visual for Harley that like, I was like, yeah. oh, they immediately know when they see the diamond that this is Harley talking. Um, or, you know, the flower for ivy or the color green for ivy or something. So, no, it's very interesting because that's really why I did the project was like to look at all of those elements individually, like have a chapter on color, have a chapter on lettering and um, see how those things can kind of combine to give that visual impact and meaning, which is, you know, I think about it every day in, in my in my jobs. So it, was, it was nice to read about <laughs> <laughs> well, well, uh, I'm, I'm going to give uh, Kevin and Sean the the assignment to to keep us from going too deep into the weeds of visual communications because because like this is this is the stuff that that absolutely fasc fascinates me. I chase it like uh, like you wouldn't believe. But just um, because we we talked about your um, fighting. And uh, and you touring the country looking for other women to beat up. Um, <laughs> one of the <laughs> one of the things that I wanted to ask you about is um, is I, I was really blown away by your uh, your wildcat story. Do you feel that your fighting really was able to make you uh, more truthful in telling that story? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I, it sounds weird to say as like, you know, a millennial female, but I really get Ted Grant, which is like, um, <laughs> I, I feel like I understand the being at the end of that fight career, which for a lot of us comes much sooner than it did for Ted Grant. Um, you know, especially yeah. now, Ted is still in the ring. And, uh, you know, a lot of us have to step out like, you know, at, at 29, I've got so many chronic health issues associated with fighting that it's it's just unreal. Like I know people that have it way worse than I do, but the things that I put my body through are just, they're always going to be there. And so um, understanding that Ted Grant, like just at some point, you're going to, no matter how good you are at the sport um, and, you know, always the younger people coming in, you know, new training, different trainers, those kinds of things. And also just the burden of having to give up something that is your identity, like stepping out of the ring and being like, well, yeah. 
I've always been like, I am a fighter. If I'm no longer a fighter, like I am a, like a boy. And so I think that is where I, I really came from with that story. And when they were like, oh, it's a Valentine's Day story, I was like, well, Ted loves nothing more than to fight. So, you know, it's maybe not from your traditional boy meets girl kind of thing, but uh, try to force himself to continuously get back in the ring when maybe he should be something else. Yeah, and I thought that was a really interesting um uh, discord that you you set up there where it's like it's about fighting but it's actually about romance and uh, and I thought the the unsaid thing in the story it, at least for me was the fight is Ted's mistress you know that's Ted's you know sort of a romantic partner and and it's something that that he would die for it's something that he will never let go and for him to have this camaraderie with this younger uh, fighter. And it's just like, okay, I've, I've brought you back to your girl, but I've given up girls because I'm fighting. <laughs> you know, and, I, and I thought that was a, a, a really cool uh, turn with the, uh, with the story is, uh, is, 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 is putting that together. I'm, I'm really glad that the first DC character I got to write was Ted because that felt like continuously over and over again, getting punched in the face for the love of the fight, which is, um, you know, it, it feels like yeah. <laughs> people ask all the time, like, why would you do this? And it's, uh, I don't know, why not? And I feel like I get that, like, you know, the drive is really there. So that, that was fun to fight. And it's still, it's still one of my favorite things that I've gotten to write. <laughs> oh, man. Well, and, and, and I, I, I do think, um, you know, when, when you're, when you're fighting and, and you know, I, I studied martial arts and was never good at it at all. And uh, and I actually was a dancer before I got into comics. And when I say dancer, I don't mean stripper. Um, but uh, he does mean Chippendale. What's uh, <laughs> what's what's really what's really awesome to me is um is is that 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 mind body connection and that mind body conflict, that like thing of of willing yourself to to like do something and you're really resting in that space between what you can dream to do and what you can actually physically uh do and uh and and i find that 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 is just such a fertile field for uh for storytelling yeah and i think that's how i like to approach uh especially moving more into the superheroes lately too i think that's how i like to approach that which is just like like I got handed a new uh, character the other day and like like some kind of weird sadist. I was just like, all right, how can I break this person? <laughs> like, like what I, <laughs> how can I ruin um, <laughs> And it's horrible, but it's it's kind of more interesting for me to find what that struggle is. Like what is that moment? Um, Cause you know, if everything is so easy, like we know how powerful Wonder Woman is or Superman. Um, so like, you know, when I got to write Superman, I was like, well, what can't Superman beat? cancer uh which is you know something that i wanted to approach from a like here's the one thing superman can't do he can't cure somebody's cancer but he can help console the people that are suffering because of the disease he can be a human like whether he's got the cape on or not and um it's funny to say because you know he's he's an alien he literally is not a human but I think <laughs> yeah. what makes him so special is he, he really is the best that humanity has to offer despite the fact that he's not from our planet um, he's like that ideal. So, so I really wanted to kind of show that. You know, same with writing Wonder Woman. I was like, you know, how can we break her? Let's make her not Wonder Woman anymore. And yeah. 
breaking point is or where where it comes in that she goes back to being Wonder Woman, even if she has no concept of who she was as Wonder Woman. Like, we just take all of that away. Um, so I, I do like finding the breaking points and forcing them to kind of struggle from there and kind of find out yeah. Yeah, and in, in your in your Wonder Woman story in particular, that's that's one of the things that um that I you know, you know I was thinking about before, where it's just like this this story of just this perfect uh, Americana, but it's a lie, and uh, and one one of the things that I think is is interesting about that is, you know, we see Wonder Woman as this character that spent her entire life battling and struggling, and to a certain extent really had no time for love, no time for relationships or anything like that. And and even the character would have probably outlived, you know, any lover that she would possibly have. But I, I like the fact that you set up a world for her that would almost be a secret dream that she would have. And it's something that you would see that the character would kind of go, you know what, I'll, I'll, you know, so, sort of like um, the character in the matrix that, that says, you know, ignorance is bliss. I'll just, <laughs> I would, I would rather live the lie than the horrible truth. And, uh, and I, I thought you really set that up uh, well in the, uh, in the wonder woman story in that she was getting something that she probably secretly craves and just how much would she fight to get out of this thing? Thank you. Um, and it's funny you mentioned the Americana thing. I was going to say that uh, that is very specifically comes from uh, Bruce Springsteen, which is uh, oh wow. <laughs> yeah, you know Bruce starts his uh, Broadway performance by saying, you know, he's this king of Americana and this you know blue collar man that's never worked a blue collar job in his life. He sings about cars and he didn't learn to drive until he was a much older adult. Like you know he would write songs like born to run and he didn't even have a driver's license (laughs) oh wow (laughs) is that his whole career was built on this lie of this americana bruce springsteen um and you know because i think i do this so much there's uh even in wildcat there's there's usually a bruce reference in everything i've written uh ted grant's uh (laughs) sweet (laughs) ted grant's uh opponent in that issue is clarence named after clarence clemens I named him, nicknamed him Thunderfist after, you know, Thunder Road or any other million songs that Bruce says the word thunder in. So <laughs> um, <laughs> it's funny you say that because it is uh, something that I've always been interested in about, about Bruce and about his writing and about his um, version of America that, you know, clearly has, has been co-opted in very odd ways when you see people like Trump supporters playing Born in the USA. And you're like, ah, I feel like yeah. you lyrics and this would be it's like have you bothered listening to anything past the chorus yeah. <laughs> sort of on that one <laughs> you know anything about at all uh, that is you know I think he's just such a phenomenal storyteller that it's been something that I've been very interested in and I think it's one of the reasons that I try to find that very human element to a lot of these a lot of these characters so I haven't done as much of the cosmic stuff i i do like the very street level you know i like being in gotham that's that's a very comfortable place to be living right now so. oh yeah i i totally i totally back you up uh, on that and 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 i i do think that that whole that whole dream of, of of that safety and that uh that perfection there's something really uh 
attractive about that. And it's, and it is kind of part of that, like, you know, sort of make America great again, where people remember a time that quite frankly never existed, yeah. <laughs> you know, but, but it's like, we can, we can describe it because we've seen it in a bunch of like Ozzy and Harriet movies and, and stuff like that. But, uh, but it's just like, it's just this, this thing that feels awesome, but really can't possibly uh, exist. And, uh, and, and I really like the exploration into that, that you're taking in the, uh, in the nuclear family, you know, because with the nuclear family, you seeded that with like everything, you know, with, with like Sputnik and, you know, sort of that perfect family at home and the dad's like a car salesman. And, and I mean, it's, it's just like, these, these are just, just the perfect setup. And then, you know, at the end of the first uh, issue to have that just completely crash. Uh, I think that's, that's really perfect. E even one of the things that I, that I thought was kind of funny is, is even the problems that the daughter has is almost halcyonic in its beauty. <laughs> you know, it's, it's just so, it's just so cartoonishly great. Uh, and, uh, and I'm really interested in, uh, in, in where you're gonna, where you're gonna take that story. But, uh, but I really think um, the, the hope for that and the loss of that is just, you know, really kind of devastating, you know, in some ways. Um, so, um, so that's, that's, that's just, just a really uh, kind of fun exploration that you're taking. Uh, Stephanie, if I can ask, how much do you read? Um, I, I read usually quite a bit. I would say when I get busier with deadlines, I read less or, um, I, I mean, it's, it's a pretty cool part about some of the stuff I do in continuity at DC is that I'm always given comics and like always have to fit my work into there so so I do read a lot of um but it's, it is usually in the comic realm very focused on um like what we're doing at DC or in Gotham uh outside of that I try to read every night I read like just I don't know a lot of horror lately and uh but yeah I, I love history if, if that's part of where you're getting that at. was I was reading the, the butcher <laughs> of Paris nuclear family I, you're somebody who I can picture sitting down with like I don't know just a tome just like a college history book and being like fuck yeah let's like clear like 200 pages Absolutely. Yeah. I, and that's where a lot of that comes from. Like The Butcher of Paris, I was reading a book about World War II that made a very brief comment about like, oh, in this trial, um, the serial killer in Paris. And I was just like, well, like, where's the footnote? Like, where, this is not enough information about this, this thing that you've just kind of thrown at me. Um, and now I don't want to read the other 500 pages on the war. I want to read this. Um, and I, I really wow. like 500 <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. uh, my dad is a book collector and a history nerd and so it, it definitely comes from um comes from the man that owns like 10 different copies of a book called waterloo first edition like it's yeah it's a little it's a little ridiculous but the cool thing is getting to go to him and be like hey i need help with like this story and if he functions like a library he'll be like here's 10 books on this one thing that you need that's very specific so wow um, he's a he's like an encyclopedia wow <laughs> so wait like how do those two parts of your brain work because you have these things that are like rich tapestries where the era is almost its own character 
But then like you're transported to like Harley Quinn and Harley Quinn is the most now Zeke-ist face of, you know, 2021. So is it hard to pivot gears going from that sort of era and approach to something that's very much like curated and specific? It doesn't feel difficult. Harley feels extremely natural. Um, you know, writing a character who like has a PhD, who gets to be uh, kind of funny in a way that <laughs> using that humor to like- <laughs> that's, that's like self-portraiture. <laughs> <you know? laughs> yeah, um, you know, some of the similarities are, um, you know, <laughs> I, I don't always like to go there given the uh, psychotic elements of, of Harley, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's really easy to write. But I'm also doing things like I'm writing a Harley that's post Joker War. So um, for the end of Joker War, you know, Joker is now gone. Harley made the move to kill him. The the clowns that were like working with Joker have just dispersed. So now we have a, a Gotham where it's like clowns ha- can take off their mask and just blend back into society. So you never know if you're standing next to someone that was wearing a clown mask at Joker's side, which then to me screams like the red scare. Like, is my neighbor a communist? Well, is my neighbor a clown that works yeah. in Joker? And like, how do we know? And so Gotham, I feel like would have that same kind of tense fear of just not knowing, not like thinking they don't know their neighbor well enough to know, like, did you fight with Joker to destroy this city? Um, so we really wanted to play with that tension, which is, I think, a very historical tension that can come back up at any time. Like, I I mean, I think we're living with some of those tensions right now. And to see those come up in Gotham in a very, very targeted way of like, where are the clowns? And, you know, can Harley help the clowns? Or is the city going to just, uh, you know, go and find anyone they think could have been a clown and just you know persecute them on the assumption that they were or something like that or because you look like a clown like you know if you have tattoos or something does that mean you were a part of joker's gang so um i think i think it's a really interesting thing to put harley in the middle of and make her have to deal with these real elements while also you know obviously maintaining the fact that she's colorful colorful character with uh, (laughs) a little bit of an accent and uh, a lot of humor and sass to her, which is, I think, a really good blend of all of those things. Yeah. Well, and, and also you're you're handling Harley in a way where she she doesn't seem um, like an appendix, and she doesn't seem schizophrenic uh, at all. Which I think is um, like I think most of the way that the character's been written, which you know. I think is awesome is the character has just been kind of a sidekick sort of character, just a character for Joker uh, to foil off of Joker. Um, But the way that you're writing the character, even when the character is lucid, the character seems insane, (laughs) you know, which, which I thought was a, like a a really sweet blend um, in that it's, it's not like she's Hannibal Lecter where she's, like really intelligent and eats people. Um, but she's got this thing where she's like, she's silly, but she's also, um, you know, a is able to break people down, um, you know, uh, as a psychologist would, which I think uh, is, is really kind of an interesting thing that's sort of been left out of the character, but you seem to be kind of gracefully putting that back into the character. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I'm really interested in that element. I think Harley 
does get to be one of the smartest people in the room. And I think it's to her advantage that most people don't think she is the smartest person in the room. So that's been really fun to play with also in the ongoing, just her exploring that, exploring being back in Gotham, which, you know, is a lot of fun to bring in characters I love from Gotham and let Harley kind of interact. And I think that's where some of the fun comes from too, is just taking characters you don't normally see Harley Quinn with and forcing her to interact. Um, and then also trying to maybe get her away from the sidekick role more by giving her kind of her own sidekick, which is um, a little bit newer to our ongoing series as well. His name is Kevin. Her, her sidekick is just named Kevin. So <laughs> there you go, Kevin. <laughs> just, just Kevin. <laughs> He's a dumb old white guy. <laughs> you know, when when is the ongoing launch? Because we've we both we read the Future State uh, one and two. Uh, it starts next month, so I think Future State two came out beginning of this month, and then March. I want to say it's twenty third or twenty fourth. The ongoing starts. Okay, uh, great. Yeah. Now, um, with the um, with the more sort of historical. Uh, reference stuff um do you think it's kind of because because i think the the trap that um that that stuff presents is it can get boring <laughs> you know when when stuff gets like too about history you know um it, it can really seem very very starchy um and uh, a lot of times i think historians don't realize how boring their history is, and it's uh, it's it's very difficult to to take um, a, a, a a history bound story and find the appeal to it. Find find the thing that's uh, that's really cool and uh, and actually exciting about it. I, I think that's a great point, and something that going to comics I think is even more important because it's also visual. So you need to make sure that it yeah medium as opposed to just being interesting which um one of my favorite writers is eric larson not comic eric larson uh he's a, a writer a nonfiction writer um yeah but he, so much nonfiction, and you can read it so fast and be like why does this read like fiction and so i started reading a lot of his work to try to figure out what was working so well and like I, i'm not going to pretend to be like i figured out eric larson but um <laughs> I think one of the appeals there is just like, instead of writing a book about World War II and like Hitler's rise to power, he writes a book about the US ambassador to Germany who was in Germany as Hitler was coming to power almost through the lens of his daughter who like has this budding romance and Eric Larson got a hold of her diary. And it's this- Whoa. <laughs> It's this like really personal human approach as something that we all know, like, you know, I, I unless the, uh, you know, US education system has gotten that much worse, I believe we all know, like about Hitler's rise to power. Um, yeah. <laughs> you have to ask. I do, yeah. <laughs> I said, like, we all know, but then I was like, well, do we? <laughs> yeah. um, but it's such a cool approach to be like, here's this human that you can just kind of fall in love with and like want to watch her live through this moment and go through her life as a young woman. And then also Hitler's coming to power. And it's like, 
such a really personal approach to a very big moment in history and time that I think one of the things that I want to do with history is give it that really personal human touch where somebody can come in and identify with something because I think the way to make somebody really learn or gain anything from history is through empathy. So if somebody can connect to the person like, um, you know, Butcher of Paris, I would argue is a story about a dad. Um, you know, it's about a dad trying to- ah, okay. It's about a dad trying to do his job while also, um, you know, maintaining his relationship with his son who's getting older and is no longer the like little sidekick. He's now going to law school and wants a different career path from his father. And, um, you know, Dean Kotz, who drew that story, I, my favorite panel in the whole thing is like they're having a conversation about a serial killer but the dad doesn't miss a beat. He goes and fixes his son's bow tie, which is slightly askew. Like he's still a dad. And oh, I just, wow. Wow. It's a really small thing that I was like, this is what's making it work as a comic is the visual is bringing something to the dialogue that we couldn't have gotten without the two kind of working simultaneously. Um, yeah, how much of Butcher of Paris, like I know you said just in the foreword, um, you know, that you had done a lot of research on it. They're really, you had never heard of that story and and so what, what characters were real and and which were from your imagination all of them are real i'm trying to think of any wow um, wow yeah i wasn't expecting that answer <laughs> <laughs> it's like these two characters are real everybody else i made up <laughs> yeah all of them um with the i was gonna say like with the exception of someone but i'm trying to i i believe all of them are real which you know i i went back and forth on that and i don't think it's something i will ever in my career do again because i don't like the the reason that i made that work is in the same way that eric larson uses real people he doesn't put words in their mouth because he finds transcripts or you know it was written in somebody's diary um so i felt like i had enough from transcripts to of course, a lot of them are in French, so the translations are as best as we could get. But like, if somebody's making a really big statement, I made sure it's something that I actually had confirmation that they said. Wow. Okay. Oh, yeah, wow. Really cool. You know, I, I wasn't aware of your, uh, I don't know, would you done one or two series before Butcher of Paris? I did Maybe. two. Um, I did one with Black Mask and then I did Descendant at Aftershock before. Doing yeah. So I had not heard of you and and we were doing um, Kill Whitey Donovan, which, you know, completely historical fiction, but th they both launched at the same time and both through Dark Horse. And that was our first book through Dark Horse. We had a Jason Pearson cover and, and one from Natalie Barahona that was the artist of the book. And I was like, man, nobody's going to beat our covers uh, this month. And then the... <laughs> Your Dave Johnson cover comes out. I'm like, God damn it. <laughs> yeah, <it's> like, <laughs> <laughs> so that's how I, I, you know, and, and then the book got great reviews because um, we were, we were sort of like hitting at the same time. So that was really cool to see, but I, I did, I read, I think I read the first book and then, but I, I am kind of a, you know, wait for the trade guy. Cause it's, I just like to read one sitting uh, whenever possible. Uh, and man, like, when I read the, when I first got the book in, I'd ordered the, 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 you know, the collection from my comic shop and uh, you know, it shouldn't work as a comic. You know, this kind of a story is not really made for comics in, in the traditional sense. Like I, I'm stunned that you got dark horse to buy in, uh, but it's a great read. And it totally like, you know, it's a courtroom drama. It's, there's a police investigation. It, it's just not like what you would normally see 
in a in a comic book, but it it reads so well, like I couldn't put it down as soon as I opened it up. So you know, kudos. But I I just figured you had took that one little like, all right, here's the basis of this guy, and then I'm, I'm just running off with making it a cool story to keep people entertained. And um, the fact that these are real people, though, I'm like, huh, I've got to go back and read it again now. So. Uh, <laughs> yeah. A lot of the dialogue too, again, is like translation, um, at least really big moments, uh, like at the very end when he kind of makes the comment about, um, you know, when people are laughing in the courtroom, that really happens, you know, him getting angry and saying that, you know, the blood of these victims will mix with uh, the smoke of the victims of Auschwitz. That was a actual quote said. in the Wow. Wow. Jeez. That led to Dave's, uh, I had sent that to Dave. And so the second cover has has the the smoke actually turning into the Star of David from one of the houses. And that yeah. was like Dave's visual interpretation of what is said in the courtroom, which is, you know, I, I love what is cover number one because I think it's very iconic for the series. But cover number two for me feels really, really like personal for the whole book and just um, you know, it's one of those things that it's it's such a good cover, but also I just need to like I want to like take a moment and like cry for a minute because this is like you know what Dave pulled off is really incredible in that cover. So, yeah, I'm, I'm glad you like the Dave covers. <laughs> you did a great oh yeah, job. oh yeah, yeah. Well, Dave Dave brings it. Dave brings it all the time, and uh, and he he pisses me off because <laughs> you know I'll I like you know sort of break out my paints and you know sort of all of this reference and just work for like you know sort of days on a cover and and dave will kind of like pull out a bugs bunny stamp and go boom there the cover's done <laughs> and it's and it's awesome <laughs> so uh, i think the the interesting thing which dave does what dave did was those images were so evocative and and it, it it's what a cover should do those things make you go what the hell is this I want to jump in and I want to read this. And, uh, and I thought that was just, just a great uh, kind of carnival barker uh, for, uh, for the book. Yeah. Yeah. He's uh, he's doing it again. We're doing, um, I'm doing another historical series and Dave is doing all the covers for those as well. And it's, it's been really cool to see that come to life. We're working with uh, Peter Krause is doing interiors on it. And I, I think it should be announced pretty soon. Um, but this is one of the ones where I took an event that actually happened historically, but I went completely fiction with it. So it's, it's mm. based on something true, but this time, like, again, you know, I butcher was kind of one of those things where I really did fight with myself over, like, do I stick with all the real people? And, um, in the end, I think I had listened to a podcast with Eric Larson, where he talked about the importance of just not putting words in real people's mouths, like no matter who they are. Like, I think we do have some real people in the other book, like Roosevelt appears at some point and it's like, <laughs> you know, that's, <laughs> I, I don't feel too, too bad about, you know, having the appearance of um, a president or something like that, or there is a character that was a a Nazi that had moved to the U.S. at some point, um, and he was a real person, and he's kind of our main baddie. But I, I guess I'll just be honest: like once you make yourself, once you make your views as a Nazi known, I don't feel too bad about like amplifying <laughs> the comic book. <laughs> There's very little. Guilt about, <laughs> well, I, I think you said like a really uh, interesting thing to me, um, and and I think not only does this kind of apply nicely to the historical books, but I, but I think the comics in, in general is, um, 
is boiling it down to the character. That's always been my opinion, is that the powers don't really matter. The intelligence doesn't matter. Um, even the math of, of the situation doesn't really matter so much is if, if you've got interesting characters. I mean, when, when I originally um, read uh, Andy Weir's uh, the, uh, the Martian, what was funny about that is it should have been the most boring book ever. Um, because it's just some dude alone, you know, sort of on a planet trying to figure out how to boy scout his way, you know, sort of out of the situation. But because it was so much about what the character was, was feeling and what, what the character was challenged by, that that was enough. I almost can't empathize with the situation at all, but I can empathize with the character. Uh, and I can sympathize with the character. And I think um, that's that's kind of a, a cool little secret ingredient that you've figured out for uh, kind of a historical, you know, sort of books. And, you know, the other books that you're doing as well. Yeah, like, you know, I want Harley to have a little bit more uh, humanizing moments as well. And, um, you know, I, I joked with an editor that a lot of what I'm doing with DC right now is like my millennial angst being like, forefront of like the book that I'm writing <laughs> it's living at the corner of funny and sad like you know it's it's funny to the extent that it's like oh if you really think about it that's actually kind of sad and depressing <laughs> um you know I think that's uh that's where I want Harley to live and I think it's a little bit different because we've seen so many of these very vibrant you know living on Coney Island and um, you know like you said Brian I absolutely adore that I just you know this is the Harley that I'm kind of telling right now and um, kind of letting her live in that space and letting her express drama and regret in ways that maybe we haven't seen before. Like um, part of her costume that we designed was in Joker War, she has her throat slit by punchline and she doesn't want to see that scar every day. So part of her costume is intentionally so that Harley doesn't have to look at her throat and see what punchline did to her. So yeah, we're trying to like deal with those things, but also watch the character want to not deal with them because who wants to deal with something that big? And then, you know, inevitably we're all confronted by those kinds of issues. And I think that's what makes Harley someone that's uh, really unique to deal with because she's so human. <laughs> like, you know, finding oh, that- yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's a lot yeah. of- <laughs> Stephanie, let me ask you a question because I think that's really interesting and in that like, I always loved her pathos. So people saw her as being very much like a character under the veil of misogyny when she was dating Joker, but I found her so much more relatable and kind of like that entire- dynamic of like Marvel characters are us, but DC characters are these gods we praise. But like Harley kind of broke that. And then she was empowered and just kind of like this feminist symbol. But like to me, that was less interesting. It was less interesting if um, respectable. So how do you balance that? How do you say, okay, here's Harley Quinn, somebody who has profound issues, but still is this breakout character for a female audience? I mean, I think that Harley is, you know, I, I don't know that we mentioned Joker at all in the ongoing. Um, like, I just kind of feel like, all right, what needed to be done was done in Joker War. Uh, we're just really telling Harley's story in this moment. And I would say there's a lot more to do with Ivy in the ongoing. Again, I don't think we've ever mentioned Joker beyond, you know, seeing some of the clowns that mention having worked for Joker during the Joker War. But I, I don't think that we've got a single mention of like, you know, being the Joker's ex, because 
her more recent relationship is with Ivy. Like, I feel like that had gained so much more traction that we get to kind of firmly say, like, we've moved out of one era of Harley into another. And, you know, hopefully uh, we're kind of ushering her into a third now, which I think is really fun to kind of be there at the relaunch of, a, of an ongoing series. Um, so yeah, we wanted to make like a lot of changes. I think that balanced that, like looking at the costume, like literally I think every element we really went over in terms of like, all right, well, what do we want her wearing? Like, do we want to bring back the pants? Which of course was my big thing where I was like, yeah, I want to bring, I want to bring back the pants. Um, and give it a slightly modern take with the like, you know, singed weight, waist, like, I think it's like a, I don't know if we would call it a romper. I have no idea. <laughs> like maybe Riley would know better than me, but um, <laughs> we want something that was simple so that she could just look good. But the other thing that we're trying to do is give her a slight emotional maturity that she hasn't had. And I think for a lot of us, like being emotionally available is really difficult. Um, and maybe more so for Harley who has, never had a reason to be emotionally available like it's i think you know we've all had probably a really bad relationship at some point and so now harley is looking at like what does it mean to be a positive person with my emotions which is like i don't know i feel like a therapist somewhere is just like yeah that (laughs) but um, It's it's kind of deep, and I uh, I don't know that we've we've seen that side of Harley before, um, which you know I I hope it works, but I I want that dimension. So what's the catalyst for her trying to be emotionally vulnerable? Um, so I I would say it's a lot of like Ivy is missing, uh, you know, not having Ivy there. Uh, also the kind of um, catharsis of putting a gun to your manipulative ex's head and being like. Batman can't kill you. I guess I will. Um, you know, she she pulls the trigger. You know, whether Joker lives or not is you know in comic book world. <laughs> is, uh, but she makes the decision. It's not like she waffles on it and like shoots him in the knee. She shoots to kill. She's she's done with it. Um, and so now I think you know record wiped clean because of Suicide Squad. She has a really good opportunity to be that person that she hasn't had at other moments before. Mm -hmm. Um, Like she had to go through Suicide Squad. Um, She had to make the move to say, I'm done with the Joker thing and and recognize, like, look at everything he's done to this city. Like, this is the right move, not just for her personally because of the relationship, but because like, if she doesn't, what's he going to do next to Gotham? Like, it's never ending. And so now yeah. she's like, well, how else could I potentially help Gotham? Um, you know, she's been a huge part of some of the ways that he's destroyed it. Can she do something that empowers it or helps it? Um, hey, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. That was Stephanie Phillips. And if you're curious to check out her work, she just launched Harley Quinn number one from DC Comics with art from Riley Rossmo. But stick around for our next session. We'll be talking with Stephanie some more about her upcoming titles. Yep, and including Nuclear Family, her new title from Aftershock with a good friend of, of mine, Tony Chastine, on the art. It's a really horrific look at 50 suburbia and politics. I mean, kind of similar to what she did with The Butcher in Paris. Stephanie is just so astute. It's a mind like a trap that can take all these bits and footnotes from history and kind of recalculate them into thrilling genre fiction. And that just flows off the tongue, man. You're really good at this. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Kevin. All right, right, stick around. We'll talk to you guys later.